This is the Alexa Stop intro to the intro, which I use to remind you that we're brought to you with DisruptionHub.com and Disruption Magazine. Alexa, stop. A podcast about how technology is changing our lives. With Robert Belgrave and Jim Balls. Well, hello, you're listening to Alexa Stop, but it is no ordinary episode of Alexa Stop because, well, the sun is beating on my face and I'm sat opposite a half-naked Robert Belgrave. What on earth are we up to? No ordinary Alexa Stop indeed, as we are sat poolside in Provence mere days after my wedding, which Jim kindly did me the great honour of officiating. And fine performance it was too, Jim. And what we know is that if I have to write too much content in a month, I just simply run out of steam. And so the content for your wedding was the only content I could create this month, meaning that this is an episode of Alexa Stop with a difference because we're focusing on some previous favourites. Yeah, we thought, given we're travelling for most of this month, what could we do to produce a, a great episode for you guys? And some of the early interviews that we did had some really amazing clips in them. So we've put together a little compilation for you of four of our favourite interviews, which we'll also provide links to in the show notes if you'd like to go back and listen to the full episode with our dear friends Nigel, Pete Trainer, Julia Lipvin, Nick Earl, and of course, Mr Sam Colliffe. Yeah, exciting topics as well. So the future of transportation, what it is to be more pirate to be an upstart in today's world the things about interference in major events such as brexit or elections and also mental health topics that have developed since we've had these interviews and conversations that have gone on and continue to happen quite a cross-section it is indeed also while here it's been my birthday it has happy birthday i'm a year older you are indeed and jim tell us a bit about the cake you received on your birthday I received a wonderful cake in the, the latter stages of your wedding meal that had some huge sparklers in it. How many sparklers, Jim? It had two large rocket-based sparklers. You did, yeah, which you tried to blow out and nearly lost half of your face. I thought that was a good comedic moment. I got someone even complimented me on that, that gag. <laughs> it's also Louise Bliss's, my girlfriend's birthday while I'm here, and so far technology has worked hard to spoil her birthday presents. Oh, really? Why? Well, there was a yellow light on my Amazon Echo that I hadn't seen before. And I said to Alexa, why is there a yellow light on you? Okay. And that means I've got a notification. Okay. Would you like to hear it? And of course you said yes. <laughs> yes. And it said, Amazon has delivered the gift, which was a, a smoothies book from uh, Deliciously Ella. Uh, and uh, Louise was in the kitchen. So uh, that means that she knew exactly what her, one of her birthday gifts was. Fantastic work. Thanks, Amazon. So that'll be happening this Friday. Unfortunately, I've also accidentally messed up on one of the other birthday presents, so I'm running out of sort of leg room to provide a truly sort of surprising gift. Okay, what are you going to go for? Good question. <laughs> I'll think about that. TVC? While I listen back to See? these fabulous interviews. <laughs> See what Provence has to offer? I suppose I can't really let us end this segment before we start this episode without asking you how much you enjoyed your wedding. It was magnificent. It was really great. Lots of dear friends, both from sort of days of old and friends from our, our work that we do in our industry. About 100 people in what was only just below 40 degree heat. I think it was fair to say it was a fantastic day. It was. I had a, a wonderful time and I was really pleased that my job in proceedings was over and done with by about 5pm. <laughs> yes, it did. Yes, indeed. But what a fantastic job it was. Thank you. So so thanks much. again. Thanks again. And with that, I think we should listen to the episode. This is Alexa Stop.
And we're back with our guest, none other than Mr. Nigel Gwilliam, who is the Media and Emerging Technologies Consultant at the IPA, and also, and this is a much more considerable accolade, the first Alexa Stock guest to bring printed notes with him. Welcome to the studio, Nigel. Thank you very much, chaps. Maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about the IPA. So the IPA is the chartered trade body for advertising agencies and advertising practitioners in the UK. Historically, the big advertising agencies would have been a membership, but it's now extended to individuals as well. This week, it was announced that the Collins Dictionary have announced fake news as the word of the year because its usage has grown 365%. Isn't that two words? It is two words. Phrase of the year. Such a pedant. Come on, Colin, <laughs> sort it out. It's going to be in the next printed dictionary as a single word, I guess. Wow. Uh, yeah, I suppose maybe that maybe it will be. I mean, look, I remember when it was triple whammy. Those were happier days, weren't they? <laughs> I don't think I would have ever said that phrase before two years ago. Fake news. Yeah. Maybe a year ago, it started sort of to enter vernacular. And would you have said fake news in, say, 2012? Like, I, I just don't think it was a thing that was kind of in my consciousness, really. No, I, I mean, I think that percentage growth is it almost slightly surprises me that it isn't larger. I bet if you looked at it over two years, it would be in the thousands of percent. Probably. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And at least two thirds of that is Donald Trump himself. So let's take this back to a really basic question then that sort of taps into what you were talking about. What does Russia want? And this is fascinating. You hear phrases like Russia meddling in elections, Russia meddling in votes. And that phrase, that word meddling just talks of, you, you know, it's, it's almost like an adolescent mischief, mis- mischief making. So I'm going to take I just a think l- of uh, Putin on that horse wearing his bare chest. Right, and he's like, yeah. oh, I think I'll do some meddling exactly. <laughs> on horseback. So, so I'm, I'm going to take you on a, on a, a brief historical journey. You know, I talked about Michael Deacon earlier on and the, the insight into this. The, that kind of idea of winning the Cold War in extra time led me down a path. Now, I studied geography at university, so um, th- this is of particular interest to me. There is a man called Alexander Dugin. Okay, He's basically a hard-right Russian nationalist philosopher. He's, he's basically a Russian fascist. Okay. okay, And he's the author of a book called The Foundations of Geopolitics, The Geopolitical Future of Russia. Okay, this sounds a bit weird and a bit tangential. This book was published in 1997. It sold out in four editions and it continues to be assigned as the textbook at the General Staff Academy and other military universities in Russia. Right. What does this book talk about? It effectively describes a world in which there is a problem with the unipolar nature of US led Western liberalism. And what Russia wants is to be recognized as another pole of significance in a multipolar world. 97, this book was written, okay? It's used by the Russian military as a, a, a textbook. What did it talk about then? In a geographical context, and a hotter military context, if you like, it talks about the dismemberment of Georgia, which oh. happened. Yep. The annexation of Ukraine, which happened, okay? An axis of power with Tehran, which is literally a live subject at the moment. That's all a little bit tangential from our conversation here. Moving on to the UK and the US, all right, let's look at what he specifically said about what Russia should be doing in the United States. Russia should use its special services within the borders of the United States to fuel instability and separation. Russia should introduce geopolitical disorder into internal American activity, encouraging all kinds of separatism and ethnic, social and racial conflicts, actively supporting all dissident movements, extremist, racist and sectarian groups, thus destabilizing internal political processes in the US. 
It would also make sense simultaneously to support isolationist tendencies in American politics. Wow. Yeah. Mic drop, right? I mean, yeah. Just the the textbook for what's been going on. And and as you say, it applies absolutely as much as it to us here in the UK as it does in America. Uh, and as we've seen, right, there's been links in the sort of botnets that have been used that were involved in Brexit, that were also involved in the Breitbart agenda in America. It wasn't hard for you to find that information. You know, we can sit here and talk about it. I cannot understand why someone like Donald Trump is happy to be so subservient to a Russian agenda unless he has some significant financial challenge that he's unable to meet. You know, there's all that talk about the debt with some of the hotels and stuff. What's your view on, on why? What's the why here? So the great power of this kind of activity, and, and it's called a covert influence campaign, and that's, that's not something that I've picked up myself. That's something I learned from listening to an interview with a guy called General Michael Hayden, who's the only guy to have run the CIA and the NSA. Okay? The reality of why this is so clever is that what it causes is antagonism between different constituencies within a single nation. So their entire purpose of sowing dissent and sowing anger and argument within the US leads people in America to blame other Americans. And so as much as one party is saying this is the fault of Russia, the other side is saying you're just looking to blame Russia for what you didn't like happening, having happened. So you lost the election, you're now blaming it on Russia. And look, in the context of how technology is changing people's lives, which is what Alexa Stop is all about, you know, let's talk about that, right? Because this is something that, in theory, could have happened for decades and, or, you know, hundreds of years, ultimately. This sort of power shift could have taken place. But what we have now is technology. We have this computational element. You know, let's assume that what we're discussing is correct and that the Russians have had, as I believe they probably have, had significant influence in a number of the things that have happened. How is technology at the heart of that, in your opinion? So the essence of this is that these kinds of actions, this kind of propaganda, this kind of covert influence campaign, they do not create fractures in society. There are fractures in place in society. What they do is they exploit them and they make them worse. So there is without a question a significant disagreement within the UK on the merits or otherwise of Brexit. There is real serious um, bipartisanship in the US around political views. What has happened is that an external force that has always sought to influence has had at their disposal really relatively limited media platforms that it's very difficult to be anything other than obvious in what you're doing. Pravda was very clearly propaganda. So that is an old world media version of, of, of propaganda. Elaborate on Pravda for those that might not so, be familiar. So I'm forgetting everyone isn't as old as me. <laughs> so, so Pravda was the official title of the Soviet Union, the official news, newspaper title of the Soviet Union. So what RT is today almost, sort of state-sponsored state mouthpiece almost. That, that's right. Although, although RT is somewhat cleverer in, if you actually look at, and you can see this around London at the moment, because there are posters advertising RT, they have a, a degree of self-awareness of being positioned as a propaganda mouthpiece. Nigel, what's your view on the whole bots thing? Are you seeing much debate about that in your world? I love Twitter and Twitter is the, the, the platform I use most to kind of keep abreast of developments. But there is a significant problem and the numbers are in the tens of thousands of bot accounts combined with sock puppet accounts. 
And crucially, this single entity, this single network, will pivot from dependent on what's most important to be talking about for their own gains, a Trump election through to a Brexit campaign. Within that, they're actually operating at scale and at pace. How many times have you tweeted, Rob, since you've been on Twitter? I don't know, maybe, well, let's have a look, shall we? Uh, let, probably I can tell probably you, a I thousand, I reckon. How many? You You're tell me. 2,700, I think. Okay, I, that's I, pretty low, isn't it, given I've been on Twitter since the beginning? Yeah. and so I, you've got a bot doing it. <laughs> yeah, it's a really rubbish, lazy <laughs> yeah, bot. Terrible bot, terrible sense of humour. So, you, so you've tweeted under 3,000 times. Uh, so I have tweeted 6,000 times because I'm, I'm slightly less diligent in my, in my day-to-day life, and so I'm a little more uh, prone to tweeting. One of the most central nodes of the Russian bot network uh, was an account called David Jones, at David Joe, and then eight numerals at the end. That account tweeted 136,000 times in a period of three years. Right. And do you know when that account tweeted during the day? 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Moscow time. Oh, you can't write this stuff, can you? Why do you guys think that they haven't taken action? I just cannot understand why they haven't done something about this yet. Fundamentally, these are businesses and their priorities are the business priorities that are there. The uh, you, You'll know this better than me, Rob, as a CEO. Well, both of you are the CEOs. Was it called your fiducial duty? Is that right? Is yeah. That right for yeah. Which is basically, you know, it's your responsibility to, to work and operate profitably on behalf of your shareholders and stakeholders. So that's their priority. I think what is coming to be realized now is that these businesses, strangely in their favor in some respects, are so influential, they require special attention. And what the Intelligence Select Committee is saying is, we need you guys to step up. You are the front line of defense of our democracy. If you don't, we will be forced to regulate you. Let's sort of think about this in the context of where on earth is the world going? Personally, I think the great tragedy for us is, you you know, Trump is there for a period of years, maybe not as many as we all might think, but there will be another presidential election. We really are left lumbered with Brexit. And that is the great concern I have for the UK. Look, it's been absolutely fascinating talking through all of this stuff. I feel like we need to end on a slightly more upbeat note. Anyone got anything? Do you know what I think I'm going to end on on this is that um, there's been some research out recently that shows that the opinions of social media in school-age children uh, have sort of peaked and usage has peaked and that people are showing sort of behaviour that shows they're substantially more savvy to the content that's put out there. Yeah. So my sort of message and feeling of hope in, in relation to this is actually there's a generation of people that have grown up in a world where social media exists and are, are substantially more sophisticated at understanding what's real and what isn't and I think they're the generation that will come after us. Nige, thanks so much for joining us. This month, we have two fantastic guests. The first is the one I knew before today's recording, which is none other than Pete Trainer. Well, Pete, how would you describe yourself to our listeners? How would I describe myself? Like, truthfully or professionally? <laughs> Maybe <laughs> truthfully, a bit of both. <laughs> truthfully, the geezer that does AI and stuff. Um, no, I'm a designer and an author who's kind of forest gumping his way through artificial intelligence and uh, various other techno goodies. Azilia, tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, hi. So my name is Ilya Litvin. I'm a psychologist and CEO and founder of PsychApps, which is a 
digital mental health gaming company. What we're doing is started out as part of my PhD thesis, and I developed an evidence-based application to treat depression. So when you use this app, it significantly lowers depression levels. But the problem was we couldn't keep people to stick to the app because it was kind of boring. So we are now using artificial intelligence, chatbots, and notifications to design a game to make it like intrinsically motivating to do therapy. So to try and learn from the patients, I guess you call them, and kind of gamify it and make exactly. it a bit more engaging. Exactly. And, it's right. all about gamification and making it interesting. Pete, maybe you could tell us a bit about Sue. Yeah, so I've been working sort of in mental health for a good 10 years in terms of, you know, working with charities, trying to work out how we could use technology. But last year was really a big one for me because we started working with a couple of really amazing social enterprises in the Midlands, Ford for Life and Community. They introduced me to a, a really wonderful man called Johnny Benjamin, who's a sort of active and very vocal male mental health and male suicide campaigner. Just astonishing people. And we formulated this group, Man Made, and it was really to try and look at all of our various disciplines and see where we could try to erode the male suicide numbers, you know, coming at it at various different angles. And so technology kind of came to me, obviously because of the business and my background. And we were very adamant that we could reduce the rate of male suicide in the UK by just one like we would very much like that number to be bigger but what we could do about it and you know suicide at the moment is killing three times as many men as women in the UK it's a really really big issue and so we looked at the way technology could try and help in this particular situation and we created an algorithm called Sue it's a very basic stochastic model to analyze conversations and try and work out some of the tone and the sentiment in conversations to give men something that they could volunteer to have a conversation with in a chat-based environment or a voice-based environment when they don't want to speak to another human being, and which was a big insight. You know, men will talk, but they're just not comfortable sometimes speaking to a person. And so for the last year, we've really been refining the AI and Sue trying to work out the best way of deploying this and, and how good this could be. This is kind of to the stuff we were talking about in the news earlier on about when people are being asked by a human they're less likely to give an honest answer. And this was one of the things that Pete and I discussed off air is, was about how actually the people participating in using Sue, they don't want to talk to a human. It's not faking human interaction that they want. They just want to be supported. And actually doing so in knowing they're talking to a machine, as the case may be, is actually a positive thing in this context because it makes it much easier for them to open up and to be open. And I think that's that's fascinating that, you know, everyone talks about AI and chatbots and all this stuff as if it's trying to simulate human communication. But actually, in many cases, there's a pretty compelling reason why it shouldn't attempt to do that. We did a whole load of psychology work behind, like, the language that Sue communicates with. So, you know, it is it. It's not an I. You know, it's a we. It's It's not an I. It's not a male, it's not a female. Sue is actually SU, it's an acronym for, or, you know, a shortening of the term suicide, actually. It's not a lady's name at all. It's So it's completely androgynous. It's unashamedly machine-driven, and yeah. it kind of works because of that. Yeah, um, no, I can definitely say we've done some research in a completely different field that showed exactly that, particularly with mm-hmm. some young people. They were very pleased to know they were talking to a machine. <clears throat> yeah. And so I think that, that, rings, that rings true. I could imagine artificial intelligence to be a very good, help and tool for therapists. Um, I don't see much in the actual therapy or intervention happening in the next 10 years, but I can imagine that because people are still people and they don't remember as well as machines and they can't 
interpret as much data as a machine can that we probably won't be doing many diagnostics by ourselves anymore. My philosophy for the business, for my work, for me personally, is transhumanism. So the basic transhumanism philosophy is that nobody gets left behind and that technology should enhance humanity and drive us forward. Do you guys think that technology and the internet has made us more anxious? Do you think that's kind of creating the problem as well? Definitely. There are quite a few studies, especially with young girls and body dysmorphia, that 20 minutes on Instagram is enough to push up their depression and anxiety rates by a significant amount. And there's a lot of FOMO and there's a lot of bullying and there's this idea of being perfect and showing perfect life. And then even though they're doing it themselves and they know that their life is not perfect, Mm -hmm. they still perceive the other people to be real. And then, you know, if you compare, then there's always going to be a a gap. So I think social media is a double-sided sword and you really have to have conversations with your kids about it. I think until the brain is developed at a certain age, which I would drastically say 18, is that you should limit their usage by, let's say, half an hour to an hour a day. Kids are going to hate me. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, you can tell that for up to four hours a day on social media and using media, after that, each half hour, their uh, grades drop by a point. There's been a lot of debate, but schools have kind of had years of practice of introducing that topic. Are they massively ill-equipped to deal with this sort of digital mental health anxiety risk that's associated with social media? From my experience, yes. We've been going around some schools, talking to classes and children, you know, from kind of six all the way through to 16 about some of these things. And the teachers are generally not, I mean, they must think that some children go home and knit. <laughs> like, like no they go home and play on minecraft like that's what they do um yeah. and i'm not watch unboxing videos on exactly. youtube like, i'm not yeah. bashing teachers they're very very busy people and yeah. they're, they're paid to do an analog job like that's yeah. what they do but i'm sure they don't realize just quite what's going on in their children's lives it must be funny relating it as a parent to when you're a child because i mean I, there was a period in my life when i spent an awful lot of time on a computer but it wasn't connected to anyone else yeah, yeah, yeah. i was just yeah. it was just me that's had a pretty bad effect on me <laughs> i mean that computer even when it was unconnected still had a sort of physiological effect on yeah. you playing games and stuff like that i mean we yeah. did a study a couple of years ago it was actually related to tinder but the same thing applies you know if you're playing an adventure game, if you're in adventure mode, that could be Tinder, that could be, you know, whatever the kids are playing on Xbox these days. For about sort of two, three minutes, you're running on adrenaline because you're in the moment and you're getting that rush. Something's pinged and you're there. Then you're kind of floating through testosterone for a little while. But that only lasts in your body for 12 minutes max for guys and less for, for ladies, but it's still there. You know, post 20 minutes, you're into cortisol which is sort of stress and depression hormone territory. Mm. Your body is slowly digesting itself. That's basically what cortisol does. And so anybody that's sitting, riding some of these emotions through, be it online, offline, amplified online, because you've got the influence of other people and all Mm -hmm. of that kind of like surprise. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's a really quite astonishing thing that we've done with technology for the last 30 years, not just the last 10 that there's a UCLA professor that calls social media and the digital world digital cocaine. And it has a very similar effect mm. to the reward system of the brain. So it can be addictive. So if people have prevalence, and you know, then they can get addicted to social media. 
In the book, we actually interviewed a, a lady. She was amazing. Um, she was 17 when we spoke to her, who had IAD, Internet Addiction Disorder. And it was it was really heartbreaking because you think... Yeah, it's a serious problem, right? Yeah. A very serious problem. Like, you know, combinations of just general social anxiety, disconnection, like had some really horrific effects. And that's part of the reason. But since we did the book and I met people like this, like I'm refusing to use the word user like with any of our clients or with any of, you know, people that I speak to, I just, I despise the word because it's kind of becoming actually quite a social norm. Like people are, are using the internet sometimes in a way that you would use a drug or you would use, you know, alcohol. And so I think it just comes back to this idea. We have to remember that everybody that we're designing this stuff for is a human being and they're very vulnerable sometimes. It's weird when you're aware of this. So I find particularly since some of the conversations we've had making this podcast Mm. that, um, I now think about my state of mind when mm-hmm. I pick up my phone because I'm like, I think I've just picked up my phone because I want the hit it's going to yeah. give me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'm like, how many notifications have I got? So doing it knowingly is even yeah. weirder. Isn't it? Yeah. Like, here's a good experiment for everybody listening, right? Somewhere on your phone, an iPhone, Android, whatever it is, there's going to be an accessibility menu, right, in settings. In that accessibility menu will be the option to put your phone into black and white. Put your phone into black and white for a weekend and see how that affects your behavior. You'll find your behavior, you get all of the pulling it out, looking at it, checking your emails, checking your notifications and stuff, but you don't get any of the little red alerts. And it kind of calms you down slightly because they're not using that big red push notification, the red bubble to drive you into those various apps. Like you feel, you put your phone in black and white and you suddenly have a bit more control for some bizarre reason. And there's a lot of color psychology that goes into how these things are designed and, you know, red is danger and urgency and put it into black and white and see what happens. 48 hours and you'll see an interesting effect on your behaviour. So let's like wrap up by sort of saying, what's the piece of technology that you can't live without? Uh, Well, my phone, obviously, but I think we're going to see in the next couple of years that doing an awful lot more good than harm, I hope, because of people like me and Zulia. Um, letting it be your codified counsellor, letting it be your support, letting it warn you when you're spending too much time on it and just being a little bit more human. Um, But yeah, my phone. Azalea? I would say by now I'm going bigger. I'm going back to my laptop, actually. And I put my phone, I read another article that if it's your phone is next to you, the probability that you're able to concentrate goes down significantly. So I put it in another room and I just work on my computer with my noise cancelling headphones and I like it nice and big. Guys, thank you so much for joining us You're for welcome. episode five of Alexa Stop. It's been a, a privilege. Time to hit the pub, I think. Yeah, thank really you very much. Thank, thank you, you so much. For, this was really good. I could do another hour. <laughs> Just in case you're wondering what's going on this month, this is a very special edition of Alexa Stop because Rob and I have been away for his wedding and we're in France at the moment. So we thought we'd share with you a few clips from some of our favourite interviews that we've done over the last couple of years. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Nicole to the Alexa Stop Studio to talk all things smart transportation, future of city design. Well, really, all things Hyperloop. Nick heads up global operations for Hyperloop One. Um, if you don't know what Hyperloop is, you're going to know a lot more about it over the next half hour. This, for me, is one of the most exciting developments in the world of technology. The first true new mode of transportation since the airplane. Welcome to the studio, Nick. Thanks, well, Rob. It's great to be here. 
So, Jim, how do you feel about Hyperloop before we get stuck in? I'm really excited. It gives me lots of sort of quite sort of space age sort of images, you know, cartoons I watched when I was a kid. Jetsons. The Jetsons. Yeah. It's making the Jetsons real, isn't it? There you it? go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess it would be guest to sort of kick off with just what is Hyperloop? The most common question we do get asked is, you know, this sounds really, really cool, but tell me what it is again. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't I talk about what problem we're trying to solve and then how we are planning to solve it. And that will answer the question of what is a Hyperloop. So what problem are we trying to solve? It's a problem that every single person who's listening to this will recognize, which is transportation is uniformly bad and getting worse. And um, if you uh, look at, you know, our crowded cities, whatever form the transportation is, journey times are getting longer and longer. And particularly if you look at trains, what we're doing is we're spending a fortune all around the world on incremental improvements on old technology. Right. And basically, steel wheels on steel rails was invented in 1820. I like to say if George Stevenson came back to life and went to Houston, he'd say, oh, look, there's a train. What we're doing is we're not trying to make an incremental improvement on anything. What we're trying to do is create a new mode of transportation, as you said, which is essentially like a blend between a spaceship and a train and an autonomous vehicle. So essentially we take a vehicle, a pod, we call it a vehicle, it's a pressurized vehicle, and we put it inside a tube and we take the air out of the tube. Now, why do we do that? If you think about airplanes, airplanes start stationary, go to 600 mile an hour, slow down and stop. We do exactly the same thing, but instead of going up in the air, we bring the low air pressure down. In fact, in our working Hyperloop, which uh, your listeners can see the video of on our website, we got the air pressure down to below 10 pascals. Some people out there will know there's 101,000 pascals at sea level. So that is a very, very low vacuum. It's a pretty significant reduction. I know this is a tech audience, so let me just say it's actually packet switching. So instead of data, voice, and video, digital packets, it's people, freight, and cars, physical packets. Pods only ever stop once, which is your destination. And you can go vast distances in very short times. So for example, London, Manchester would be 12 minutes. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. I'm going to sort of take this back to some basics. That was a fascinating sort of conversation, but let's imagine creating a Hyperloop between two points in the UK. I'm going to the South Coast tonight. It's one of my least favourite train journeys because it's incredibly slow for the distance that I need to travel and it invariably has a bus replacement service on a Sunday when I need to get back. <laughs> I um, recognise that. So, so if I'm sort of heading to Bournemouth or Poole, uh, I, I, I guess the time would be sub-20 minutes to, to that to that sort of location, but what would we what would you actually need to do to build a hyperloop yeah. from London to Bournemouth? So, what's the tunnel? Okay. What's all of that sort of stuff? Okay, so there's multiple parts of that question, but the actual point to point part of the question. So, the hyperloop is in a tube, um, as we said, and the tube is needed for the vacuum. Hyperloop will work without the vacuum; it just goes faster with the vacuum, uh, and faster equals 700 miles an hour, which is the same speed as a plane so know your face won't I can't pe- won't peel off I can't yeah that's the that's the question yeah, yeah. what does that feel like it doesn't you know the number one thing on the internet uh, that, that you see that the biggest myth is oh your face will peel off and the people who are saying that is because they remember those old tubes used to have in department stores they were typically red you put some paperwork in oh, and yeah. they sent the paperwork up to accounts listen planes start stationary they accelerate gently they go to 700 miles an hour and they slow down and they stop so does the Hyperloop. And your face doesn't peel off on a plane. Only difference is planes go high 
not because they need to jump over buildings, because they want to get lower air pressure for economy. We bring the air pressure down. So we're at the air pressure of about 200,000 feet. So no, your face doesn't peel off. What does it feel like? It will feel like taking off in an aeroplane. What would it take to build it? The first stage of looking at this is you do a, basically a survey of the corridor and you have to decide, do you want it above ground or below? Or maybe a combination of the two, potentially. Most routes that we've looked at are a combination of the two. Right. Now, there's a NIMBY component here. They're not in my backyard. I don't want the tube. <laughs> and that, that's, a, that's a big thing. We're, we're looking at that. But remember, high-speed rail, one of the big things about high-speed rail, I'm told about 30% of the costs of high-speed rail projects, let's not name one in particular. <laughs> but can't if you think which one think we might be thinking one, about. 30% of the costs is actually land acquisition and moving the utilities. Now, with Hyperloop, you don't buy land. You buy holes. It works like a flyover. It goes concrete posts. So you can live under a Hyperloop. You can graze cows under the Hyperloop. You don't have to sell the farm. Mm -hmm. So if you put it on posts, which in the Middle East they're very happy to because there's sand, sure. then you basically just need the land for the hole and air rights. You need a corridor permission for transport. That's a regulatory approval. You don't need to move the utilities because you jump over them. Now, in crowded urban environments or crowded countries like the UK, probably the default option will be to tunnel. So then you say, okay, well, what about tunneling? Well, first of all, the width of a Hyperloop is about the width of the London Underground. So the cost of tunneling is proportional to the, the square of the diameter. Yeah. So a narrow tunnel, four meters or five meters, let's say five, mm -hmm probably be between the two, but let's say five to keep the maths easy would be 25 units of cost, but a, a 10 would be 100. Sure. So tunneling is inherently cheaper. And because you can go under the ground to a deeper level, you can avoid the utilities. So our belief is that the physical topology of Hyperloop-enabled transport networks will resemble the digital topology of the internet. Now let me explain what I mean by that. After 20, 30 years of the internet, what we've now ended up with is three types of networks. Ubiquitous access from anywhere, called Wi-Fi. Local area access within a building, the LAN. And then wide area network access, the fiber between points far apart. Uh, we believe that the physical networks of the future will resemble that. So what is ubiquitous access? It's autonomous cars and drones. They come to you. What is the access in the city? Think of the city as the building, in my analogy. The local area network is a network of lower speed, not, not super fast speed, right. but pods that can, you know, you can go be picked up at your house. The car could actually go into the Hyperloop. And if you look at what Elon is doing, so that's that might exactly be like what, what he's the, doing. The boring company project. That's exactly LA, what the example. boring company yeah. is doing. And then you think, okay, now I want to go long distance, the fiber. So then what we're going to need is the industry needs to then establish a set of interoperability standards, which is exactly what happened in networking. Yep. Think of the, the IP protocols that were established. So then you could actually have, you could be picked up, go into a tunnel, go through the city, go to the Hyperloop portal, go the long distance, but you, you're still in the same seat. So three networks, three network topologies. Instead of data, voice, and video packets, it's people, freight, and cars. And it will revolutionize every business process, where you live, where you work, how you build a city, how you plan a city, where you put cancer hospitals, because you can now distribute them. It'll change freight distribution. 
And, you know, it's not going to do it overnight. Sure. But the internet didn't do it overnight. But it will change everything. I mean, it, we are not going to continue living with 200-year-old technology. For me, this is one of those when-not-if situations. Like, I think that someone that also has worked in and around the internet for my whole career, your analogy really rings true to me. And for some of our listeners, they won't quite relate to it. If none of that made any sense to you, trust us. We know what we're talking about. Like, that sort of blend of those three types of network that is invisible to the average user is a key part of what's made the internet so successful. And I think that to bring that approach to the physical world of transportation, I'm struggling to come up with a reason why it won't work. It's simply a question of time. To play devil's advocate to that, if you look at autonomous cars, people have been saying the thing about autonomous cars for several years. If you talk to the autonomous car companies, they are all now working on simulators because the biggest barrier, apart from regulations, which we know about, safety regulations, but the biggest barrier is people feel scared to let go of the wheel. So they're all investing in things that will go into shopping malls where you could actually have a simulated experience. There's always a section of society who say, hell yeah. What we've got to do is get governments to say, I want to do it. We're not there yet. We're close, but we're not there. We think we will get there based on what's happening. Then we've got to build two or three. You mentioned that. We've got to get safety certificates, which will allow us to then put humans in. And we've got to actually show that the cost of doing it is totally different. So let's take a look at this from a sort of um, the current infrastructure of the UK. We've got a motorway system and and, and in the US, you know, freeways, highways, those kinds of things. Do you envisage a situation where some of this infrastructure would replace existing infrastructure because that becomes outdated? So my experience of 30 years in the IT industry is one of the first things the IT industry did was lose the takeaway sign. And what I mean by that is that I remember, you know, email came along and then uh, we got uh, voicemail and voicemail was going to replace email. And then video or telepresence uh, came along and that was going to replace voicemail and email and then instant message. and and, And guess what? They're all still there. We just do more of it. So I'm naturally cynical that anything gets replaced because I think people want choice. And there will be, not every journey will, people will need to be or people will want to be inside a Hyperloop. It'll be based on where you are and where you want to go. If it is clearly easier and it's proven that you can get between A and B much quicker, then people will choose. But we're not saying that roads are going away or trains are going away. We might steal a lane. (laughs) Uh, Well, interesting you say that. We ran a competition worldwide to get the best ideas for Hyperloop. We got 2,600 entries. We just announced the 10 winners. So we sort of crowdsource the uh, sales process, if you like. And the German entry put the Hyperloop above the Autobahn. Right. um, That's interesting. And then you totally collapse the journey times. And then it would appear that if you put solar panels on top of it, it could actually be energy positive on my behalf and i'm sure on jim good luck will be cheerleading for you the whole way and i for one hope to be get stepping into a hyperloop on my next journey down to uh, the dorset area Sam co-founded Liberty in 2001 as an experiment in ethical marketing that grew into an international youth-led creative network with 100 staff in two continents, which empowers young people to change their world. You've won a number of awards for Liberty. It's clearly been a fantastic success. 
you know, you've worked with some amazing brands, Google, YouTube, PlayStation, Facebook, Red Bull, just to name a few. And now obviously you're involved in helping make the world a bit more pirate. 300 years ago, a group of people started an interesting movement that we think of very differently now in the sands of time. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about what happened 300 years ago and, and how some of those people were feeling and what it led to. 300 years ago, a group of professionals in their 20s and 30s feeling deeply frustrated with an unfair establishment, a broken system, and a set of rules that favoured the few decided that they would reject the society they saw around them and rewrite the rules themselves. It was a time that bears many similarities to that which we're in now, you know, riven ideological conflicts around the world, the, the first multinational corporations of the world raping the world for its resources, and an incredibly stratified system that suggests that, you know, you will not progress through this. It was a dark and brutal time, and these guys said, fuck you, we're going to do things differently. It was a time of great innovation and of change, and so they rejected what they saw around them, and they are who we now call pirates. Over time, there has always been pirates, and we are just talking about the golden age of pirates. It's this 40-year period, exactly 300 years ago. And what happens is, is really rather remarkable, and I think it's something that we can learn from now, because as we stand with the same kind of challenges facing us, and this generation particularly, who also have the tools hugely at their disposal, and still this, 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 this lie that sits behind us that there is no other way of doing things, and we lack some of the role models. You know, I'll be goddamned if I have to sit down with another group of young entrepreneurs and Uber is the only kind of model that we can aspire to. Sometimes it's necessary to look beyond the great teeth and the, 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 the funny surnames of Silicon Valley and dig into history to find real moments of change, positive, progressive, social change, innovation that isn't woolly and worthy, that is balanced with fortune and fame, but that also stands for having an equal say having uh, an equal play and equal pay and that's what these guys did on pirate ships at the time you began to see really interesting things emerge you see the first ever time of universal suffrage everybody on board gets a vote you know this is a time when giving a vote to women was seen as an, an, an athlete, you know we're, we're over 100 years before the suffragette movement and female um, leaders too female leaders absolutely it's not until 1972 you saw a female leader in the fortune 500 and a little bit later than that you saw it in the uk uh, it's when you first see the system of dual governance that you've got someone in charge of culture and someone in charge of strategy peter drucker suggests that several hundred years later and it's 20 years ahead of any kind of governance system that sat in any business or organization they're light years ahead in terms of global branding we largely think that was coca-cola but actually 150 years before they invented the Jolly Roger specifically as a signaling theory to increase their profitability and reduce their recourse to violence. Uh, it's the first time you saw social compensation. So if you were damaged in the workplace, you received a payout, uh, which then became an inalienable human right nearly 250 years later. Again and again, even same-sex marriages was first seen on a pirate ship, process called Matillage, that even had inheritance worked out within it. Cocktails were first invented on a pirate ship. Again, That and was again. my favourite. <laughs> Again and again, you see something happen. Yeah. True innovators. Rejecting society, rejecting the rules, and opening your minds to the idea that something can be different. And there is an optimistic, practical, inspiring space that we are not learning from. And we find ourselves at a moment when optimism, imagination, and solutions are much needed. How do you be more pirate? First thing I would suggest is go and find a stupid rule and break it. See how it feels. See how you got away with it. And then stage two, come up with a new rule. But in the book and in all my research, this, I've created this kind of five stages, this five-stage framework of what I think pirate change brings about. And in every one, I've sought modern examples to test my theory. You know, is this true? Where's someone broken a rule, then rewritten it for others to follow that then changes everything that comes subsequently? And there's no shortage of examples. My, um, one of the ones in, in, this, in this section is uh, Chance, what Chance the Rapper has done. 
So, you know, the first ever, the only artist ever to win a Grammy without having a record deal or, or commercially releasing a uh, piece of music. You know, fantastic. Completely afforded the opportunity through technology, but it was the chance to break the rules that made everything flow very differently. Now what happens because of that mutiny? You know, the, the, not, the many thousands of young people aspiring to a career in music completely changed their relationship with the music industry, yeah. completely changed their sense of who they are, their sense of entrepreneurship. You know, business models are disrupted and something begins to really change. That's my idea. That's what I'm looking for, that kind of that level of, of mutiny. But it begins with something very simple. A conversation between him and, and Childish Gambino about don't necessarily try and seek a record contract. See what it's like if you stream it. This notion that I've arrived at at the end of the book, when it's no longer a metaphor, is a manifesto, a manifesto of change. So first part of the book that you've, you, you've, you've seen is repositioning the idea of pirates, that they weren't rogues, that they've been resold to us as, this romantic Johnny Depp kind of notion, that actually there's something in there that are role models, that needs to seriously be looked at, that should sit alongside other moments and movements of civil rights in our history. And then the second part is this framework of change. And, and the third part is a look at what was called the pirate code. So the pirates had this really strong set of laws that you had to live and die by. And they were created by consensus. So everybody on board a crew collectively made this code. Then they were signed off in blood, kind of metaphorically. Although maybe literally. Probably know, literally. Probably yeah. literally. Let's, yeah, let's exactly. go with literally. Let's go with literally. With, with a rum cocktail. <laughs> and over 40 odd years, uh, they remain remarkably consistent. And this is obviously a time when there's no, you know, you can't Google it or, or, or wiki pirate it. And that's because they were built on profound values and measures. So going back to, you know, starting something with purpose, know exactly what the values are that you will live and die by, not that you'll put on the wall and forget. And in these codes are articles like fair pay. We will all get an equal say. We will all get an equal share. There's no, there's no pay gap issues that we're still facing. Uh, around diversity, around social compensation, you know, really evolved thinking, signed off by a crew of what we think of vagabonds and bandits and rascals. On that basis, they set out on their mission. It was actually a high-functioning, holocratic community, right, in, in many ways. Hugely agile network based on dynamic structures, or, organizing themselves on a, on a holocratic principles, you know, un, unequivocally. We've just got nice, new, shiny terms for it. all them. sounds awfully trendy in this day and age of, of, awfully of trendy. Silicon Valley businesses, but as they, you say. They were 100% there, and they could crew up. The largest known assembled crew was Captain Morgan when he sacked an entire city, 2,000 pirates. Uh, the average size of a pirate crew was less than 200. To be able to crew up together and then crew back down to your individual organization, not requiring the infrastructure between it, is pretty impressive from an organizational point of view. And that's why I'm, I'm in, interested by this code as a way of organizing yourselves. And so I have hypothesized a pirate code 2.0, which I know sounds a bit glib. But from the modern day pirates that I've met around the world, I have discovered some of them organizing themselves around pirate codes. And principles that then determine the organization or the activity that they do that come before the, the, the business plan. And so I've assembled a set of those, and in just the same way the original pirate code was lifted and stolen and adopted and adapted by all the different pirate crews, I'm putting forward the beginning of a pirate code 2.0 for others to lift, adapt, adopt, and steal. I thought, based on what you've just said, it would be lovely to finish with another little excerpt from chapter one, which is... You know, today, if we want to improve this picture of our future, we have to do it ourselves. And the only way out of this mess is a little less Instagram and a lot more action, which I absolutely loved. Thanks very much. And the book's out 9th of May, is that right? 
the book is out in the 3rd of May. 3rd of May on Penguin Random House. So it'll be everywhere. Amazon, online, all good outlets, Audible, all, the full shebang. Already is. You can buy it from Amazon or Waterstones, depending on your preference for taxpaying organizations. Or you can buy it directly from me and I will wrap it up in some nice skull and crossbones paper for you. Well, that sounds like a great offer. Talking of gifts... Is I, this the first time we've had a gift on the I think so, yeah. I've been playing around with the idea of uh, rogues and role models and brands and how we steal from them. So I've been making some pirate logos. So <laughs> oh. you can have the technology one. So I've been hand- as you're the straight guy. I've been handed... Seeing as you're the funny guy, you can... You so, can oh, that something was amazing. That a little bit like a Samsung logo that just says pirates on it. It's great. Oh, We've got Emirates with <laughs> pirates smirn off. I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll stick a photo on Twitter of us wearing our, our T-shirts. I think Jim's got the best one. I, I like this one. I thought you'd like that one. Sam, what a pleasure it's been. You know, the front cover of a book is the Steve Jobs quote, I'd rather be a pirate than join the Navy. And I think that definitely applies to me, particularly having heard your, your wisdom on the subject. I can't wait to read the rest of the book. And to anyone listening to this, go and watch the talk Sam's put online about the topic where he goes into some of these themes in a bit more detail and have a read and, and see what you think and, and break a rule, right? And, and challenge the system and try and make a meaningful difference in the world. For the people interested in, in your show, the topic of technology, you know, do you really think that the, the main reason that we've managed to invent all of this is simply to make a bit more money or, or make a change? Or have we invented the tools that a generation's mindset has arrived at that it now needs to unlock the change that's coming? And in, in what we've talked about with blockchain particularly, but a lot of the other applications that we see young people routinely with their hands on, don't tell me it's not a bigger chance for some serious change. And let's take it. If there's rum, I'm in. <laughs> there's always rum. He's on board. There's always rum. See what I did there. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Sam. So here we are, still poolside. We'd like to thank you for listening to that programme. And if you've not listened to Alexa Stop before, uh, we hope that was a good introduction to listening to us. Normal service will be resumed next month, late July, something like that, when we'll have another guest for you. And actually, we've got a sponsor on board for the next episode, Rob. Oh, really? Exciting stuff. As ever, this has been brought to you with Disruption Magazine and DisruptionHub.com. And anything else you'd like to add? No, just thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We've actually just finished listening to all four of the compilated clips that you have also just listened to ourselves by the pool, which we very much enjoyed. We hope you enjoyed them as much as we did. I'd love to almost re-interview all of those people in a year's time and see how they've all done with their various missions. Maybe Nigel has conquered the Russians. Maybe Sam has recruited the pirates. God knows what Pete and Zilia are up to. Uh, And maybe Hyperloop One is flying us across land. And sea. And... Wherever else we want to go. Desert. <laughs> desert. Yeah, is desert. the most common one. So that's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from him. <laughs>